everyone. My name is uh, Anantika Kumari, and I currently live and work in London in the banking sector as a human resources professional. Like a lot of you, I was um, attracted to Network Capital for the uniqueness that it offers as a community. Diverse people from India and outside, you know, sharing openly and organically building what was a Facebook group into a thriving peer mentoring community. In, you know, in, in one of my first interactions with, uh, with Utkarsh, we, we spoke about work and what attracts us to our jobs. We, we spoke about the linearity of careers as they are. <clears throat> and if that really works for millennials today or you know, just for anyone really in, in today's time. And we also spoke about HR as a profession and what's it like to be working in, in a unit that is probably highly distrusted, contrary to its purpose, of course, um, in, in most organizations. I walked, I walked away from that discussion with Utkarsh, which was my first with him, thinking, you know, that is a very interesting person and seems to be putting pen to paper, you know, thoughts that we all have regarding work and life uh, in today's times, but just can't always articulate it that well. And uh, therefore, you know, maybe lacking that awareness and, and knowledge. And here we are discussing, uh, you know, Utkarsh's book, The Seductive Illusion of Hard Work. And it, it really offers just this. So I'm, I'm not very surprised that, you know, after, after you're thinking of that first interaction with Utkarsh, and of course, we had a long journey into where we are today. Um, I'm not surprised that we are sitting here discussing uh, his book, which is all about work, work in today's times and our lives. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book, uh, you know, and found myself highlighting every time, you know, I resonated with the concept and thought I needed to, you know, I needed to read that again. I need to come back to again. But and that actually ended up being very often a lot of the chapter. Um, what I really liked about the structure of uh, of the book is um, is the conciseness of of each concept that Utkarsh writes about, right? Um, making it, you know, what I would call a go-to book uh, as we navigate through through work and and our complex lives. You know, as as students and fresh graduates, we we get into work believing that you know hard work will will get us success. And yes, it does, right? But however, there are multiple other factors that, that influence this relationship of hard work and success. And, and the book does exactly that. It, you know, it offers us the mental models uh, with real examples uh, you know, that, that sort of help uncover these factors. And, and of course, uh, a highly um, you know, exciting aspect of these examples is that it's it's not just Utkarsh's examples. Or you know, of course, there are examples that he you know shares from his personal experience. But it also has what a lot of us from the from the Network Capital family uh, have shared. You know, in in our uh, community, and that's what actually makes it makes it very very exciting to read. You know, a lot of times, you know, we get so consumed in the linear relationships of um, the, just the linear relationship of hard work and success 
that we, you know, we somewhere lose ownership of our careers. We just, you know, talk about our work and our career journey. And, you know, we very often start to think that someone else, you know, most often our managers uh, is, is, you know, will be planning for us. And organizations are large, you know, and managers have multiple people to focus on, um, you know, rather than just, you know, planning individual team members' careers. And I think what Utkash does in the book is, you know, he talks about this in a very succinct way. Uh, the mental model that he, the mental models that he describes offer that insight into, you know, how we should, A, take control of our work and career, B, how to make this more meaningful in a way that helps us realize our purpose, and C, how organizations can build better and more engaged communities. I think for me, you know, that that last part, you know, just just being in the field that I am in, that that last aspect was uh, was really quite profound. And I think, you know, there are many parts of the book, actually, that uh, I have, you know, highlighted, uh, which I can, you know, relate to quite easily at work and, you know, have a lot of examples that I see there. So I'll definitely be going back to that um, very, very often, as I said. Uh, you know, in my, you know, multiple interactions with Utkarsh, you know, one of the things that I learned from him and, and it comes out in multiple chapters in the book is, um, is to get better at talking about ourselves. You know, one of the lines that is there in a chapter is, you know, share your confusion and push others to do the same. Uh, a while back, I did a masterclass on, on network capital on unconscious bias and you know, how we we tend to be the very first victims of our own bias. We, we hold ourselves back in multiple instances and don't even realize we're falling prey to, to an unconscious bias. And an interesting concept from the book that really stuck with me and I want to talk about right now is, is what uh, is what's defined as the luck surface area. And and that that is equal to the hard work, what we do. Uh, multiplied by telling others about our work. So it's, it's sort of a relationship between progress and influence uh, that defines our luck surface area. And it's, you know, it's something that we all need to get better at doing. And it's something that it's a craft that we all need to own and develop and get better at forming our own narrative and then owning it. And you know, as I said, you know, this is something that I have uh, in my multiple interactions with Utkarsh, you know, reading his posts, you know, doing, um, you know, just having those, you know, one-to-one -one chats with him and uh, learning from his stories. You know, this is something, and I was very sure to find this in the book, of course, but um, it's just one of those skills that, uh, that, that the book really puts into perspective into why that's important. And, and a skill that is so important uh, when it comes to planning our career, our work, and, and navigating uh, through, through both these aspects of our lives. So, you know, the book offers all of this and, and much more. And, um, you know, we, we all have examples from our life, as I said, that we would relate to different chapters in the book. And, and that really is the beauty of it. You know, it's, it's just so simple. Um, and it's so relevant to each of us. Uh, it, it makes the book more engaging. 
So I highly recommend it. And as I said earlier, it's one of those books where, you know, you'll read, you'll reflect, you'll apply, and then you're going to come back to it to, to another concept uh, in the book. So um, I think, you know, those were just some broad reflections of mine from uh, after, you know, reading, reading the book. I don't want to, you know, obviously share too much because I want to invite everyone else to read it and um, also hear, you know, how everyone else perceives different aspects of the book. But now on to some, you know, just a, a, a chat with, uh, with, with the man himself, Utkarsh. I did say to him that we will keep it, you know, two-way and would want to hear more from Utkarsh, even though we, we hear and we, we see so much and we, we read his examples in the book, but there's nothing better than hearing uh, from an author in person, of course. Uh, thank you so much for doing this, Anantika. I personally um, got acquainted to you through a dear friend, and then I got to know you as as a person. And what struck me about you know friendships and uh, networks and serendipity, and of course network capital is one large meta situation, is that how beautifully dots connect. And second is that how multi-dimensional people are. So when I first uh, spoke to you, um, and and from uh, to today, which has been about a year. I've got to know you as a friend, as a professional, as a person with interests outside, uh, you know, like finance and other stuff that you do uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I wrote the book keeping uh, a curious millennial in mind. A person is usually defined by a job or a designation, and I think that is uh, perhaps incomplete. We should look at one's curiosity. And curiosity is intimately linked to the luck surface area that you talked about. So dear listeners, um, the best way to get to know Anantika is through uh, the Network Capital TV masterclass she did on unconscious bias. And uh, when, I, when I keep coming back to that concept, I learned that this is something that is ingrained in all of us. So let's actually begin this uh, tete-a-tete with a discussion on unconscious bias. Why did you start thinking about you know, that particular subject? Because our way of looking at bias is very different. I explore bias through mental models in the book. There are about 40 that can, I think, help explain any situation. You understand bias through, uh, uh, I think, a very different kind of a lens. How did you, when you were reading my book as also a teacher of that particular subject, how did you reconcile uh, the different styles, if at all? It's, you know, so how I sort of look at bias, and I think a lot of it was, it comes out in the book uh, as well, right, is I learned, I learned about it through how I apply it to myself. So, you know, my own personal experience with bias, where, where I am in, a victim of my own bias. Um, and I think... So, you know, again, the lens that you offer when I was reading the book, I, again, you know, sort of put myself in that situation because, you know, as I said, mm -hmm. they're all real examples. These are all things that that happen to us. Right. The whole point on luck surface area is is so relevant to all of us. And I think, you know, I've come back to you, Utkash, you know, talking about this multiple times, even though, you know, I've, I've written about unconscious bias. I speak about unconscious bias. But, you know, when it sort of, you know, comes to forming my own narrative and say, talking about the work that I do. You know, I very often put multiple biases on myself and lens on myself yeah. and, you know, you know, uh, underplay my, my narrative. And I think, you know, if I go back to an example, more recent example from my work life is, you know, when I, when I, when I moved uh, continents for career, you know, people would ask me, 
um, you know, how did you do that? My my first response was, I just got lucky, right? So, uh, but, but whereas if you compare that to say uh, if a friend, a male friend of mine, and if someone asked him that question when he moved continents or jobs, um, which is not always easy to do, you know, you'll always hear points on, well, you know, I did, I formed a network. I, I, you know, I reached out to multiple people. I hustled a lot. I put in a lot of hard work and, and that's how I managed to move. And, you know, it's listening to all of that. And this is something else also that you say, right, is, you know, how do you present yourself? How do you talk about yourself to others? And then what do you do to sort of try and actually become that person? You know, we all have that slight gap in that journey. And for me, learning of bias has been this journey. It's been about how I present myself to others versus how others present themselves to others. And it's, you know, being part of those conversations where I have, you know, realized what different biases have I been, you know, holding myself onto. And um, that's been my journey with, with that topic. Whereas I think, you know, as, as you said it, you know, you're, you're a successful male, if I was to say, so, you know, again, yep. your narrative in the book comes out. Uh, and I'm not saying all, you know, women do this, but it's, it's a more personal journey for me. And I do think there are some gender stereotypes or some gender biases that we end up sort of attributing on ourselves. That is such a fascinating point. Uh, because, you know, one, one, the way I wrote the book was not supposed to be prescriptive, like, you know, do ABCDE and success will come. The book is essentially a uh, uh, a, la a laboratory of my experiments with curiosity, careers, work, relationships, what have you. And uh, the aspect of gender or companionship or, uh, you know, in the workplace, how different relationships manifest, this, this comes out and there are different styles. So uh, when we discuss a luck surface area, it, it's basically a simple uh, equation of do great things, tell lots of people, right? You can't become lucky without doing either. You can't keep telling lots of people without doing anything. And you can't, uh, you know, just keep doing and hoping that someday somebody will find out. It has to be a combination of both. But there is a gender angle to it, as you rightly pointed out. Like women are reticent. Not all women, but like a, a lot of women uh, seem to be reticent in talking about their achievements. It is also a cultural example. For example, the people who've seen Emily in Paris, the new show, uh, on Netflix, they would have noticed that uh, the way, say, Europeans talk about themselves is very different from the way, say, Indians talk about themselves and the way from Americans talk about themselves. So there is a cultural angle to it as well. And uh, I think that these things, it's so important to actually have this dialogue. So this book is very much meant to invite people, such as yourself, uh, and me also as the author of the book, to conduct more such experiments. To, to, to figure out what works for them, what doesn't work for them. Um, because the idea is not to, you know, proffer a, a recipe for success. What is success at all in 21st century? It's actually you work towards finding a certain amount of fulfillment, meaning, and other kinds of things. Have you struggled with finding meaning at work at any stage of your career? And if yes, then what helped you? Uh, and if no, then tell us your secret sauce. I think, I think I did, you know, like, like a lot of us. And I think you know, I would say, you know, especially in, in the early years of my career, but I still sort of find that I think, you know, as we I think what's important is how we define that success. What, you know, what does success mean? Is it 
I think at least when I started working, so I talk about my journey, in the beginning, as any fresh graduate, for me, it was just that linear growth, you know, which was success. So, you know, you join an organization, you sort of move up the ranks, and that is success. But as you start of, you know, you start engaging further, as you start moving further up in the organization on that ladder, your meaning of success starts changing because then you're like, what is the impact that I'm having? You know, what's the purpose that I'm creating and for others and for myself? And if I look at success today and how I define that today, do I get it all from my day-to-day job? No, but I get a large part of it from my day-to-day job, yes. But there is so much more that I know as an individual I can do and I can offer. And that is where me seeking purpose outside of my linear career comes in, right? But all of that is is a metric in, in how I define success for myself. And and it's it, I think this is something that you very beautifully capture in the book is, uh, you know, even just in the network that you create, the tribe of mentors that you create. Um, you know, what do you sort of, you know, start deriving purpose out of? And I think, and again, you know, one very interesting point in this, I remember one of the chapters you talk about your passion, right? And how also we're, we're sort of entering almost a flip side to what I just said. You know, we're also entering a time where, you know, hobbies have become so competitive because all of that sort of yeah. starts, you know, linking into our, that, our definition of success. And look, I think that's great, right? It's for every individual. Like you need to excel in every aspect and that, you know, defines your success. But for a lot of people, it's also sort of dribbling with different things, you know, dribbling with different aspects, you know, you know, trying out, trying your hand at something and, you know, works great, but then you move on to something else. And the variety of, uh, you know, things that you end up getting involved in, the number of people that you end up interacting with, those could also be metrics to, to your success. Yeah. You know, let's let's explore this point uh, a bit more. So I'm an actor. I, I do theater, some movies here and there. Um, I realized that when I started, there's this beginner's enthusiasm when you're delinked to performance. Right. Then you then the joy is just, you know, so dumb jumping and dancing and, you know, being on stage. But once you start getting uh, quote unquote some recognition for it, you want to become better. You want to ace the game. And I, while writing this chapter, I stumbled onto this very interesting bit of work, which says that essentially the demands of excellence, whether it is to become a human resource, uh, big shot, or to become yeah, like a, um, a CEO, CXO, whatever, or to basically just paint well or bake better cakes, which is very popular in Corona these days, uh, it becomes a sort of a competitive game because you want to outperform either your past self or your friend or you know somebody who you who you go past and just that when it once it becomes competitive it costs you your freedom and isn't all of this we're, what we're doing part of the freedom narrative we want to be more free buy more time buy all of that um so that's my story is there something that you've done where you've uh, where it started off as pure bliss pure pleasure you know beginners uh, fooling around and then it became sort of a competitive kind of situation where uh, you felt the need to excel just because you were partaking of their hobby. I've, um, I think I've, I've done, I've done different activities. I get to that point and, and then I move on to another one. But once, you know, one such activity that I have sort of taken with me is, um, I'm a class, I, I'm a trained classical dancer. So I've been learning 
Kathak right since I was in school uh, for about 10 years and then had a long gap in between and then went back to it, um, you know, a couple of years back very recently. And it's, it's again one of those things, you know, where you, you start with, you know, pure joy of, um, you know, just passion and happiness that it brings to you. But, you know, it's, it, it's that same feeling, right? When you're in a class with so many other people and everyone is doing their grade three, grade four examinations uh, in the dance, it, it does come to you. And then you want to, you know, that, that, that competitiveness sort of starts coming in and you, you want to do better and you want to do more. So I think that would be, that would be one, um, one, act, one such activity, I think, where I've, my competitive spirit has sort of come up, uh, you know, in, in, on different occasions. But as you said, I think for me, again, you know, is it whether I have that grade four examination, you know, certificate hanging on my wall, or is it the pursuit of progress in that? And, you know, when I, when I talk about the pursuit of progress, is it, is it something that I am, you know, sort of competing within myself and my own skill and all the other things sort of that it's adding to me. And I think that is, is, is a learning which has been more valuable for me. And I'm, you know, sort of, you know, linking all of this back to the concepts that you share in the book. And I actually have a question for you at this point, right? Talking about this, um, you know, pursuit of progress and this competitive spirit. You know, when, when you were forming Network Capital, right? It's, it's a thriving community. But if, there, if there's something which is very beautiful about that community is, you know, people share their successes, people share their stories, they, we talk about ourselves. Um, but it's that, it, and there is that benign envy that you also, you know, very nicely describe in the book, but it sort of stays, it's managed to stay away from any kind of unhealthy competition building up on that group, which is not very easy to manage, right? Because it's a group and it's sort of free flowing. It's for, you know, all of us as part of the NC family to, to make what we make of it. Is there anything that you did? to sort of steer it in this way, or has it all been organic? Uh, you know, I think uh, it's it's an excellent question. Let me brainstorm with you, and then you can tell me whether my answer makes sense or not. So um, when I started Network Capital, I was, uh, um, I was intrigued by the idea of career intelligence, right? Just intrigued, like, you know, but just the way I'm sure you give advice to 20 people, even I give advice to people who, who reached out to me, but I thought that there is something fundamentally incomplete and broken about this process, right? Incomplete because I don't think uh, uh, getting into an MBA or getting out of an MBA, getting a job, getting funding, that is that cannot be the only goal of a young person's life. That can be a temporary fleeting goal at best. So I did want to build an institution that lasts. Not a fly on the wall, came, disappeared, then came again, like, you know, nothing of that sort. I did want to build an institution. That was something which was very clear to me. The second thing was that I also knew, had a flavor of what obviously does not work, right? So, uh, so I tried to avoid the things that usually lead to network collapses. For example, the difference between a network and a clique is that uh, in network, typically, you have a very large number of people, you have high amount of trust, and then not everybody needs to agree with everyone as long as they agree on what ground rules are there, which is setting up those, those frameworks. And the third is that I think what was also helpful was that I took the, all the community members along with every stage of the journey. So there was no, like, uh, there, was, there was nothing behind the scenes anywhere. So in the start, it was a Google form. That was just me 
managing people who reached out to me for advice. Then it became a Facebook group. After the Facebook group, it became a subscription-enabled Facebook group, one of the first in the world, actually. And after uh, the subscription-enabled Facebook group, it became Network Capital TV, the Netflix for careers, where you know people like you have done phenomenal masterclasses. So at the core of it is your masterclass is a byproduct of the trust that we've scaled. And it is by avoiding some of the common mistakes of network versus click and keeping in mind that you will not tolerate uh, anything that is not uh, not particularly mine. So in the book, I talk about Katerina Fake's um, ideology, uh, which said that you are what you tolerate. So if you tolerate sexism, you are a sexist. If you tolerate racism, you are a racist. So we said, OK, fine. One advantage of not being too dependent on you know, external capital or other kinds of places is that you can essentially define your core values in very strict terms, so which I had done that. And the benign envy part we kept in mind because I kept, um, kept reminding people and now, Anantika, I do have some words for it. It's my Harvard Re Business Review article, the category of one, which is that you can be very successful and I can be very successful. But you and I don't need to compete for the same things. I don't need to compete with you on HR and you don't need to compete with me on community building. However, if both of us build our own category of one, the overall network capital ethos becomes stronger. Mm -hmm. And imagine if you can take this philosophy and take it to classrooms in relatively poor countries like in like South Asian countries, yeah, where you everybody doesn't need to stand first and you know get into best schools and programs. You can actually define, okay, I'm going to define my area of competition. I'm going to nurture my curiosity, make it broad based, and then build my category of one with the help of my friend. And you can use competition, you can use a lot of this to augment yourself. So I think those kinds of design interventions have help, been helpful, I think. Uh, but uh, what do you think? Like, have you observed yes. some of the more uh, uh, hidden cultural aspects of it uh, as you've been a part of it? I think, you know, one other point that I would add to everything that you said, completely agree with you. I think that's what has really, you know, sort of helped keep the ethos of uh, the network capital family. I think the one, the one other thing that definitely stands out is this implicit shared purpose, you know, which, yeah. which through all of these design factors, as, uh, as you mentioned, it's there. You know, everyone who is part of the NC family knows what the shared purpose of being here is, you know, knows what our place is and what our objective is. And I think that again is, it's that really sort of helps, you know, permeate the, the kind of culture and the kind of collaboration that you're looking for um, on the group. And um, I think we, I want to say we, because I count myself obviously as part of the NC family. Integral I think we all do. A, <laughs> all of us, exactly. And, you know, we all, I think, do that really well. You know, we, we all somewhere, I think, you know, hold ourselves uh, you know, accountable for what is being shared, how it's being shared, um, the purpose that we end up creating for other people who are a part of uh, the NC family. And you see this, right? I think if you have like musk, one miscreant, you know, who comes up somewhere, say something, you, it's, not, it's not just you, but, you know, it'll be someone else in the family who will come up and, you know, pick up. So I think that shared purpose is, is so well defined 
And uh, even though it's not explicitly mentioned anywhere, which is why I said, but it's just something that we all sort of call by. And I think that is beautiful. And, um, and I think, you know, just going back to one of the other concepts from the book, which, which again really stood out for me is, is the, is, is, is this flow between, you know, social movements and workplace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why I think I sort of, you know, resonated a lot with that also right now is because, um, you know, I'm, I'm dabbling with a bit of, uh, you know, some, you know, political organization. Tell us more about it. I was, I was right? dancing around it. I thought I'll bring it up towards the end, but tell us more about it. And I'll ask yeah. you a bunch of questions. Yes. Sure. So I think, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, working as part of a citizens collective where our objective is just to increase women's representation in, in politics. And um, again, if we're a group of individuals who spread across the globe, uh, you know, and we, 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 we meet very often, we, you know, have our cause, we have our objectives set, but it's that, that shared purpose, which is just increasing representation of women that has, you know, just got us together and makes us all work together towards this common objective. So it's, you know, again, you know, just organization has, you know, both social and at workplace comes down to really these, you know, four simple steps that you need to do to just get people aligned with you. And once you have that, then of course, you know, you sort of, you know, keep scaling and meeting your objectives. But um, so, yeah, so that is something that, again, I have, you know, successfully, I want to say, you know, use the network capital platform to talk about, to, you know, form my narrative, to share that with, you know, multiple people on the group and hear what they have to say and then engage and meet with people I mean, you know, we were, we're currently working on a campaign for the Bihar elections, and I was, yeah, I have managed to connect with multiple individuals and organizations from Bihar sitting in London through the NC family, right? Through the, through the community that uh, we have built on, on Facebook. Yeah, and you know, it, it, a lot of it started with Facebook, but now we've gone, like we've built our own platform, networkcapital.tv, and I'll tell you why it connects to the movements as well. So uh, many times people ask us about like, you know, the evolution of Facebook, sorry, evolution of network capital from, you know, Google to Facebook to, you know, our own independent platform. So we decided that uh, it, it's time to basically create and produce content from the likes of you a certain way, because you want to make the whole consumption and debate not dependent on any particular platform. That also comes down to the core value of network capital. Basically, networks and systems and institutions should not be designed keeping in mind the strongest person. They should be designed keeping the weakest person. All right. And I discovered that an English speaking Facebook user who can who typically works at a good place and studied at a good place is perhaps not the only person we should keep in mind. How do you make that more inclusive? So one of the things that we did, okay, fine. For many countries where Facebook and English are a challenge, how do people access it? So say, let's build a platform. How do you navigate the English barrier in Bihar, for example, uh, where there's uh, less of that, perhaps convert it into Hindi. So all of these ideas come from keeping a core design principle that let's not focus on the strongest person, let's focus on the weakest person but let's not focus only on either, either the weakest or the strongest. The biggest challenge of our times, the polarism that exists is because we sometimes forget to bridge the gaps or forget that people, even when they come from very different walks of life, have a lot more in common than not. 
So I think that that kind of uh, philosophy also is reflected in our product. So the people, when they go and check out networkcapital.tv, they'll see that the, right now it's only in English, but hopefully it will be in other languages as well. The flow of it is, uh, is particularly well designed. And when I was writing this chapter on, say, politics, workplaces, and movements, I, I also want to take a moment to tell you about we have people from all orientations and political affiliations on network capital. Uh, if uh, you and I are Indians, so there are people from uh, you know the parties in the power, the party in opposition, regional parties, all of them. In America, you have Republicans and Democrats. So uh, in 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 Britain, you have you know people from both sides of the aisle. Why? Because people, no matter where they come from, essentially care about very simple ideals. We have become complicated in the process. And in a way, the idea of politics or communities or institutions is not to you know, make the divide bigger, but to actually bring people on the same page. So even people like you who are working on, say, political youth movements or political movements in Bihar, I think ultimately it will come back to the same principle on which network capital is designed. How do you scale trust? We are interested in career intelligence because my theory of change is career will essentially you know, lead to everything. Your theory could be women in politics. And uh, eventually you will also get to that same and go to the scaling trust. Now tell me, at your weakest, as your most tired moments, when you stumble into misogyny, which is not that hard to find in South Asia, how do you push yourself to look for the more hopeful side and you know try and focus on the scaling of trust which uh, which i alluded to right now i think you know you find people um in all groups you know you'll find people you'll at least find one person who will agree with you if there are five people who disagree with you but i think you know one of and again it's it's a concept i learned of very recently uh, it's called fitzgerald intelligence it's, you know, when you can keep two opposing, you know, thoughts uh, in your mind, you know, and two conflicting thoughts, you can keep them both in your mind and move forward, right? So it's not that there is one truth over the other. There, there are multiple truths and, you know, multiple competing truths, especially in the kind of, you know, partisan world that we live in today. But it's to, it's to have that higher understanding of being able to carry that dissonance with you and then move forward. And I think that is is something that we all, I think I've really started to nurture that. You know, I think it's very, it's very easy to, you know, sort of get very angry and, you know, talk to someone in a heated way and say, you're never going to talk to them again. But, uh, but somewhere this dissonance, which you carry with you, it only helps you form your values and your beliefs and your mm. action. It just makes it stronger. Right. Mm. And uh, again, I know they're going back to a story from the book, you know, where, which you narrated where you had, uh, I think a fellow Chinese pair student with you, and you know both of you did not, you know, see eye to eye on on a particular topic. But I can tell you that I'm in you, Tibet. I mean, me exactly. as an Indian, like I had no, I had no idea that that's even a thing. That, uh, but I was, uh, I stand corrected, at least. Yeah, you you know you were sort of you know left aghast, right, when you first had your first interaction yeah. with this other person. Now, you both of you could choose to you know shout at each other, like many of our news anchors, and walk away. But, you know, what do you get from that versus, you know, the fact that you carry that dissonance with you and you continue to have, uh, you know, this mutual 
relationship with this other person and you know you talk to things you only see the other other side right it's not saying that you're wrong or the other person is correct but there's a lot of value that that dissonance adds to us and our narrative and our argue, argument as well so that is i think something that i've learned to now apply to 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 just different aspects right of life and mm. different situations where you where you encounter say misogyny in everyday life or or any other kind kind of um you know argumentative uh your know, behavior that you have yeah so in the book i also talk about identity politics i talk about should you discuss uh, politics at work and i talk about how charlie munger and warren buffet uh both of who come from the opposite spectrums are able to uh, sort of um, you know like have a very strong healthy partnership that really works so now my question to you uh, is should people discuss politics at work yes or no i talk about it in the book and there is a mental model that i leave what's your perspective i think people people try and dabble around it i think still you know it's it's almost like walking on eggshells but um i think when it comes to organizations say taking stands on certain things i know till mm. till now in the past it's always been you know organizations should stay clear of politics then they shouldn't but i think the, where in times that we're living in today it would be a miss if an organization you know doesn't take a stand on something that it strongly actually believes in you know for example when you talk about um you know just the whole recent black lives life black lives matter movement right all organizations are striving for diversity right we all uh you know as you said we all all organizations have their lovely posters up where they talk about diversity and increasing diversity now in that time in and there's a movement like this that you know you know picks up um socially how do you not put a voice out you know i think that would be a miss and and somewhere where you sort of end up disconnecting and disengaging with a lot of your employees so i think um i think it's still it's still something like as i said people so it's walking on eggshells but i think you know there are some parts there are some aspects where you cannot not take a stand and therefore you cannot not get political so i was to say yeah yeah i agree i mean i actually um thought long and hard about including this chapter in the book because usually um usually i think ambitious smart young uh, millennials sometimes feel that uh, getting involved in politics will really drain them out and they are perhaps not wrong because you know these conversations invariably come about or allude to identity and inevitably somebody gets hurt people get unfriended and blocked and like people get emotional you know because it it seems like uh, somebody is attacking their identity um but i think precisely at those uncomfortable moments you need to have that conversation somebody once told me um that your success in life basically comes down to the number of uncomfortable conversations you're willing to have and one such uncomfortable conversation i think is uh, is politics so yeah um that is why i thought you know how can you not have it and there are examples of people who have actually navigated this uh, divide quite well couldn't agree more with you uh with Karsh on that point <laughs> yeah so um you know otherwise like uh, if you look back in your career you said that uh, there has been uh, moments when you've moved when you've pivoted from you know different spaces to the other but there's been one curiosity which is like figuring out the bliss of the human uh, relations or human resources aspect of it at work um 
today living in a different society slightly more polarized society in a society where you know people are being let go left right and center what do you think is the responsibility or what does future of your industry really look like because if you go back to our first conversation i told you hr is basically two things hro hr organizational and hra administrative you are more on the o side in my opinion so tell us what's the future of hr how do you see it evolving you know i think as as things are getting more automated you know organizations are changing the very fabric of you know how organizations are sort of built is is really changing today but i think if there's one thing i mean there there's a lot of debate on whether you know hr would remain or how it would remain i think the one part that would definitely remain of the function is is the organizational part as you said right which is and in my mind it's really it's keeping that human aspect which again you know it it just gets lost very often and very easily um but that is something that i think a lot of people a lot of people in the industry are focusing on there are a lot of you know if i was to say if you look at your book to me it's 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 like a gold mine for an hr professional right a lot of it is exactly what hr advisors you know would do and pick up and different coaches would also do that right so it's and what what makes it so valuable is is the human aspect of it because that isn't going away you know irrespective hmm. of large small you know tech automated or not you know sort of industries come up that human aspect is not going away um so and i i truly truly believe in that so i do see that you know human resources i mean tomorrow will is it's already changed so i don't want to take it say it will change a lot hmm. of it has already changed but i don't think the relevance of it is is really getting uh, you know depleted in any which way and as yeah, i said I, i think you know the book is a testament to that as well in in my mind at least that's how yeah. i read it you know anantika um the book is like some it covers people aspects but basically it is a it's a strategy book it's a book that you can apply as a strategy whether you're an hr professional or a person or somebody working in a tech company or uh, you know another kind of firm uh, and the thought that kept coming back to me is that hr is such an important position like people strategy which is completely wasted or it had been at least wasted by organizations by making it the least trusted department imagine the <laughs> global world economic forum global shapers of which uh, uh, i'm a part of there was survey and i think i alluded to it the least trusted among the least trusted departments is hr and i think that happens because a lot of hr work these days in many companies tend to focus on the structural side of it and less on the how do you pick the people but companies are uh, taking it up what i would love to see is how does the role of an hr person become that of a coach at scale like you can't start coaching 2000 people but you can develop a system of coaching and mentoring that actually works do you know everybody uses mentoring and coaching but why network capital works because most people don't know what that means and what that practically amounts to i don't know one mentoring program that works and i have studied at the best of places and worked at you know fairly prestigious organizations there is a reason for it because the whole way people look at mentorship is either too long term or too short term so it's 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 not a balance that we've struck yet um 
so in the book i touch upon some of those aspects of it mentoring coaching i'd love to get your perspective before closing out the session on it in your opinion what does a good mentor mentee relationship look like and if you were to look back at your own life work uh, or in school or in college or masters have there been some healthy relationships that have really helped you blossom professionally creatively and otherwise absolutely i think you know what you said on mentoring is is so true right and i think what ends up defining the success of any mentoring relationship is to a large extent is is the timing and the duration right so i think timing for what brings the mentor and the mentee together you know what what is it, it you know what is that pivotal moment that gets them together to start talking or to start working towards a common objective and then the second aspect which is the duration you know it has to be towards a specific objective right or you know you need to, as a mentee i need to define what i want to get out of this you know mentor out of this mentoring relationship and at the same time to keep my mentor engaged what is it that i can offer in this in this you know mutually um, you know beneficial mm. relationship and i think that timing and that duration with this understanding that it's not a one way street it has to be two way because that's what keeps the engagement on is i think these three factors really end up defining the success of of a mentoring um uh, you know relationship that you have and it's also a reason why so many of mentoring programs just just fall apart and i think for example when you look at peer mentoring on network capital what keeps it ticking is because i think a lot of these aspects get covered right you come in bringing certain value and you're seeking value from another say expert in in a particular field for uh you know meeting a particular objective and you know you define that time and that duration and the value um so i think that's really what make what makes it successful as far as for myself i've 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 had a tribe of mentors you know i think throughout and it's awesome. it's not always someone who is you know has is higher is higher up than me in my career but i've had a lot of peer mentors i think you know through my school you know coming from a boarding school you know living with people living away from home i've uh, you know developed uh, i think what i would say a solid network of peer mentors who've really helped me and from different industries right and from different walks of life so to get that different lens and perspective on things um yeah and i that is something i encourage everyone you know we we all can be mentors to people we all have value to add uh to many people's lives and uh vice versa right uh, there are many other people out there who can bring a very unique perspective to to how we view things in life for both our work and personal life so absolutely be, be open you know just be keep your eyes and ears open and um be, be open i think just being open to that feedback uh will will get us uh, what we want well i wish you arantika a uh, uh, blissful work life harmony and to all our listeners around the world uh, because that's just the final final point i want to end this conversation with there is no work life balance nobody will ever find it let's actually get to finding something that we truly care about with people we truly care about and life will be both impactful easy and fun we sometimes stress ourselves out uh because we're not you know pursuing something that we really want to so let's try and get that harmony let's contribute let's get these peer mentors and uh lead something interesting 
Thank you Absolutely. so much, Anantika. I had such a blast listening to you, and uh, thank you so much for being here on this uh, live program. I also want to make a small announcement uh, that the podcast, Seductive Illusion of Hard Work podcast, will be live uh, on, on the App Store, on Google and Spotify in two hours. So you can actually, even if you missed Anantika live, you can catch this conversation on your phone. Thank you so much, Anandika. See you very soon. Uh, we're not far from each other. Bye. Absolutely. Thanks, Utkarsh. Bye.